The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak, less it's something worse singing. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you see this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and cha, what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, pandering to the wrong group of people nearly 100 days before a very important midterm election, we cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99 because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. We are in a moment that requires our leaders to meet. So if we stay complacent and quiet and silent, the importance of this issue dies. And so I thought it wasn't enough for us just to legislate, but to also stand with the advocates and make good trouble, as you know, our late colleague John Lewis used to say. Our guest this week was sworn into office in January of 2019 representing Minnesota's 5th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives. When this happened, she became the first Somali-American member of Congress, the first woman of color to represent Minnesota, and one of the first two Muslim-American women elected to Congress. That's right, we ain't playing today. Please welcome my friend, my sister, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Hey, 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 how you doing? Hey. I am doing great. So excited to be here with you today. It's lovely to have you on. And we know you have been busy, busy, busy representing the people. Just a little bit. Just tiny things, you know. We ask everybody who comes on this podcast because we are a pandemic pod that could. (laughs) Contrary to popular opinion, the pandemic is still raging across the country. And so we got to ask, what has your pandemic life been like? Are you baking bread? Are you planting gardens? I mean, we know you're running the country, but tell us about what your pandemic life has been like. And are there any unique habits that Miss Rona has given you? Yeah. I mean, so strangely, the the pandemic has brought both uh, blessings um, into my life and tragedy, right? I lost my father to COVID. Um, He was one of the first casualties of COVID. He passed away June of 2020. And that was, you know, a a tragedy. This was a man um, who meant so much, so much to me. And and so it was really hard to, to lose him and to grieve his loss it's it's hard uh sometimes to even think of him as being gone but i also got married the day the country went into shutdown oh my god Um, so march 11th 
we got married and we both have children. And so we were blending our family together during the pandemic. And I think that was a real blessing because we were all in one place and forced, right, to sort of figure out our day-to-day together. That's right. Uh, that it brought all of us, I think, closer and and, um, and expedited the um, getting to know each other for, for the children and, and for both of us. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to be able to, to cook meals. <laughs> yes. uh, my kids were like, this is like the first time we've seen you make, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for us. <laughs> and so so it was it was really exciting. And I think because we had so much time together and you could, you know, sort of schedule your day differently, we now have a routine as much as possible of having dinners together. Um, I I tend to cook a lot more. We have been baking a lot of like Somali bread and stuff like that. Um, the kids haven't had that since they were like little, little. And so I'm really excited to to be able to have them sort of like learn this part of, of their heritage. And my son, who sort of likes to cook, he's 16. Yes. So does my stepson, who's also 16. Uh, they have sort of become the mini chefs of, of the family and are making a lot of our meals for us. Oh, too. that is so absolutely really excellent. We love to hear it. Can you tell me a story about a time that you changed your mind? about something that you were like really fiercely about, like it's this way. Tell me a story about a time when you've changed your mind and tell me what happened as a result. So, so I would say, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, as you know, um, I'm someone who uh, was born in, in Somalia and moved to this country via living in a refugee camp and eventually getting um, sponsorship to come here and so I was sort of like one of those people, unlike many of the diaspora, that was mm-hmm. like, I am here, right? This mm-hmm. is this is my country. And I do all my organizing in trying to make my society better here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was never like a lot of my siblings or many of the community around me that was constantly engaged in the happenings of the country that we left, Somalia, that was going through a lot of turmoil. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, there was a famine that was ravaging. Uh, over 300,000 people were at risk of dying. And my my father was like, let's go back. And I never really imagined that I, I do that. Um, mm-hmm. But I sort of started developing as I watched the videos of what was happening, uh, read about a lot of the young people who were in the refugee camp that I was in, having eventually gone back to another refugee camp, didn't get the opportunities I got, and were now part of the people that were at risk of, of dying of starvation, of famine, um, that I, I should be able to, to do something, right, with the newfound privilege that I have. And that's kind of why a lot of the diaspora continues to be connected to the people they left behind because there is that, you know, that's, there's that familial uh, connection. And so I, I ended up going back and becoming part of a youth group that was like Somalis helping Somalis uh, and help deliver some immediate resources. And I think since then have really cared about what's, what the plight of refugees around the world 
is and what our role as those of us who have survived that tragedy is because we do get to give voice to people who are voiceless. We do get to live a privileged life of being in a country where we have different kind of opportunities to exercise that voice. Uh, and so we shouldn't um, waste that. And so that's kind of been part of, of my journey uh, in changing my perspective of what my role is after I've left the country that I was born in and came to the country that adopted me. That is really, really powerful. Well, speaking of finding your voice, you have definitely been exercising yours. Uh, We were just talking about how we were scheduled to talk, I guess, a week and some change ago now, but you were busy being arrested protesting uh, the recent Supreme Court decision that effectively weakened, if not mostly eliminated, abortion rights at the federal level. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to participate in that action and why is this particular issue so important to you? I mean, this is a a pivotal moment in, in our nation's history. For nearly 50 years, people who, who have ovaries, who, who can produce a child, um, have enjoyed the privilege of making decisions about their bodies for themselves. Right. Uh, and for the first time now, they're not going to be able to do that throughout the country in the same fashion. That's right. And so Roe, you know, in, in many ways was about privacy, was about uh, autonomy to our bodies. It was about making reproductive decisions with ourselves and our families and our healthcare providers. And, you know, although I represent Minnesota, where a lot of those privileges are still accessible, those are not accessible to everyone, even the states around us, North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and other places. Uh, And so we are in a moment that requires our leaders to meet. And so if we stay complacent and quiet and silent, the importance of this issue dies with that. And so I I thought it wasn't enough for us just to legislate, right, to codify Roe into law, to pass legislation that would protect women and their right to cross state lines to seek legal abortion, but to also stand with the advocates uh, and make good trouble, as you know, our late colleague John Lewis That's used right. to say. Because if you think about it, right, you and I belong into a generation that have enjoyed access to a lot of rights, whether it is the you know the rights to vote, whether it is the right to marry who you love, whether it is the right to access your full reproductive rights, and all of those rights that we've enjoyed have come at a cost to the past generation. Uh, And so I feel responsibility to my daughter's generation and their daughter's generation to stand up and to do everything that I can. You know, Congresswoman, we um, are in a moment in this country where politics has never mattered as much as it does right now. And I think a lot of times people think about politics as like, um, it's your values, right? And it's what you believe in. But you have like firsthand insight into how politics is also very much about the rules that we set and how we get them done. 
So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, give us some insight into what's happening at, in the U.S. Congress right now. Why can we not see policies that are improving people's lives moving forward? So I like to think of politics as being personal, right? Every single policy decision that is being made by politicians that is brought about the politics of the moment does have an impact on on us personally and everything that we do on day-to-day basis. And so when you have the the masses not being involved in the policymaking, then it leaves few (laughs) that have, you know, deep pockets that are advocating on behalf of these special interests that get to influence the politics of today. And so in, in Congress, you've got, you know, people who are beholden to the people that they represent, who take their responsibility um, as a representative in a representative democracy, who feel like they have to have fluency in the day-to-day struggles of the people that they represent and, you know, produce legislation that creates solutions for the problems that their constituents are having. And then you've got others who, who are here essentially only responding to their corporate donors and corporate packers and are responsive to the lobbying cohort um, that dominates Capitol Hill. Uh, And there is a push and pull between those two. And so that's why you end up outside of like the party lines uh, in not seeing legislation that positively impacts people's lives because when politics is working, <laughs> it should produce positive change for people. Um, but we are living in a very corrupt political system where elections are essentially being bought by corporation and special interest groups um, where the people that you think you are electing and, and thinking that they are going to respond represent your interests are essentially representing the interests of those that have essentially bought them their seat um, of, of influence. And so we need mass movements, right? That's why they're important. We need people to actually be involved, to understand what the stakes are, why it's it's important for them to get involved, to vote. Um, whenever I see a member of Congress that wins their primary race or their general election with, you know, 15,000, 20,000 votes um, or over 100,000 in a general election, that that is shocking to me mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I represent a state where even in our primaries, you know, nearly 170,000 to 200,000 people show up to vote. and 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 it's telling because, when you are somebody who's being elected by a small number of people, having a lot of campaign resources sort of makes you insular um, to the the needs of, of the people that, that you should be representing because you know that, you know, the accountability isn't there. Um, many of them are not as engaged as they need to be. And so the few that you need to convince to continue to vote for you you don't you don't even have to show up, right? You can yeah. uh, just win with with campaign ads. Whereas, if you need over a hundred thousand people in order to win your election, you have to be engaged. You have to be talking to to people. You have to constantly be accountable to them and and deliver for them. 
Congresswoman, you know, just following up from the discussion we just had about what's happening in Congress, I mean, I think we hear from a lot of voters, and in particular Black voters, as you know, that's who I'm kind of focused on, um, that people feel like, what's the point? And from the inside perspective, I can only imagine that there are some times where you're like, what is the point of this? But you continue to keep going. And so I'm wondering if you can talk with our listeners about why you don't quit, why you don't just throw your hands up and go, well, you know, the corporations and the banks and the rich people, they've taken it over. Like what keeps you going every single day? Well, because the the corporations and the banks and the rich people want us to quit, so that's why yeah. we don't quit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I and I often think about just like how exhausting, right? Um, this whole exercise must be for for a lot of voters to be asked to come out to vote, to support, to to give out donations, to rally around candidates. Uh, that then turn around and do not fulfill the promises that they made on the campaign trail. And I am reminded of the fact that this, this system is designed that way yeah. because, you know, the, the the corporations, when they are making their, their donations, whether they get their win or not, they don't stop, right? They, they will keep going. And there is no exhaustion from... The, the lack of success on their lobbying, they're not exhausted by the amount of money and resources that they just spent. They know that this is a long game and they will keep going. And so for us, we have to also understand that, that no matter what happens, we have to keep going until we have a system that works for all of us. Because when we get tired, they win. When we don't come out to vote, they win. When we are not, you know, putting our resources together, they win. And so we, you know, there has to be a a commitment from the masses to say until the system works for all of us, we are going to be in the forefront. We are going to push for change and we are not going to allow them to exhaust us and sideline us. Mm -hmm. You know, Minnesota is such an interesting place. Um, And I am so excited that I got to talk to Black voters in your home state about you and putting you in Congress. And one of the things that really struck me is that you all really are building a movement in that state. You have such an interesting and fabulous story about how it is that you came to politics and who all congealed around you to like lift, elevate, and push you forward. I'm wondering if you can talk with our listeners a little bit about how you got involved and more importantly, why you got involved. Yeah. Well, first of all, I I, I want your listeners to know that it, it meant a lot uh, for you to be out there in 2018 for my first primary run. It was a 10-week <laughs> primary run. Uh, it was a very rushed election. And, and having all hands on deck really made the difference. And people like you who uh, took a chance on me really is, is one of the reasons why, why I'm here and why I have the honor and the privilege of being the Congresswoman for Minnesota's 5th Congressional District. Uh, my journey started because I, you know, was raised by a, a father and a grandfather who 
were born in colonized Somalia who are very excited about the idea of participating in a democracy. So when we eventually came to the United States, that's all they talked about. And so at the age of 14, I started taking my grandfather to caucus. And it was uh, strange in a way because, you know, this was a man who was very fluent in the democratic process and what needed to get done, but he had language barriers. So he relied on me to help him access this process that he knew much more (laughs) than I did. Um, And it just felt wrong. And so I stayed to make the process more accessible for new immigrants like him so that they can continue to fulfill that lifelong dream of voting and participating in a democracy and having their voice heard and their voice be um, on the table. And, you know, the the organizing community in, in Minnesota really is very unique in that we we do both electoral organizing and issue organizing with the same excitement <laughs> because we understand that there is a connection between getting people to care about policies that personally impact them and electing people who will um, usher in those policies as part of the legislation that they pass. Uh, and so we, we do that work so beautifully together. So I was always part of, of that community. I had a leg in, in in electoral organizing, running campaigns and doing that work, but also being involved with, with issues as we fought uh, against amendments to say, you know, that gay marriage should constitutionally be banned, which we won in, in 2012. Um, and we were, the, I think, one of the first states to have a ballot measure that stopped gay marriage from being banned. Um, and, and I think it eventually led to where, where, where our country is today. Um, but we also fought successfully against things like voter ID laws and, and stuff like that in, in that ballot measure. And I've been part of organizing around $15 minimum wage and wage theft and paid sick and safe time uh, doing my work uh, for City Hall uh, so I've always been involved in that as as I did my actual job of being nutrition educator with the University of, of Minnesota. And eventually in 2016, I decided to run for the Minnesota House and ran against a 44-year incumbent. Um, yes. We were <laughs> successful in that race. And I don't know if it's luckily or unluckily, my predecessor, Keith Ellison, decided that he wasn't going to seek re-election um, with only 10 weeks left of the primary. And so I decided to put my hat in that race. And it was a six-way primary race where, you know, we were running against incredible female leaders, you know, the the a woman who was the speaker of, of the Minnesota House for 12 uh, years, um, the first Latino woman uh, elected to the state Senate, um, just really incredible leaders. So it felt a privilege and an honor to be able to win and, and be chosen, um, you know, by by my neighbors and people who who had a hand in shaping who I am today. Uh, and it's been a really challenging but exciting journey because, you know, we came in with the most diverse uh, cohort mm-hmm. Congress has ever seen uh, in 2019. We had the first pro-choice majority. Um, It it was a really incredible um, coalition to to be part of. 
unfortunately, we came in doing a shutdown. There was a lot of challenges to to deal with in in that regard, and obviously uh, confronting the fascist former president uh, that sort of singled few of us out um, and and made our time as freshmen uh, in our first term really challenging. But I think because we came in such time where there was a lot of excitement, it allowed us to to be able to be innovators and sort of do the you know inside outside work in a way that it's never seen in Congress. You have talked a lot about why you stay in it, what it takes to stay in it, and what's at stake. And I really also want people to know that, you know, not every bill that passes in Congress is something that you hear about on the news, but things are happening there. You shouldn't think that absolutely nothing is happening in there. People are fighting on our behalf and we need more fighters so we can get more good policy. I want to hear from you. What is your proudest legislative accomplishment just from this past year? Mm -hmm. So I I think one of the pieces of legislation that I'm incredibly proud of is our Meals Act, uh, which is legislation um, that has now fed nearly 30 million children across the country. It created the Universal School Meals Program um, during the pandemic. And it's it's an incredible achievement to have been able to do that as someone who believes we have to feed the bellies of our babies before we could feed their brain. It's really important for us to prioritize child nutrition um, as, as we think about what it means to, to educate young children in, in this country. But we also passed a, a bill to fight against uh, Islamophobia. Uh, and that's a bill to to create an envoy with the State Department um, to help monitor and combat Islamophobia around the world. Uh, countries like China uh, are persecuting Uyghurs who are mus- Muslim minority. Um, Muslim minorities in India are on the eighth stage of genocide, which is a complete tragedy that no one is really talking about. You know, the the Muslim minorities uh, in Burma, the the Rohingyas who were genocided against. uh, This is a a quiet storm um, that is happening around the world. Uh, It's not getting the attention that it needs. And and to be Muslim, to be in Congress, it's really important to me that people take this issue very seriously because we matter, our lives matter. Um, And the fact that there's genocides taking place around the world and people are not paying attention to it. Um, and sort of think it is okay because we're Muslim um, is, is really uh, dis- disheartening. And then today, which is why I keep taking pauses to vote, two of my bills are um, being voted on in the Education and Labor Committee, uh, and they both address the school lunch shaming that is taking place because it's important for us to make sure kids, regardless of what their income is, are able to have meals and there shouldn't be a process where schools are allowed to hire debt collectors to collect on uh, defaults on uh, school meals, which is insane that we live in one of the richest countries in the world and we're not spending any resources in feeding our kids. I mean, it is absolutely, it's infuriating that we would be doing that. But luckily, we have fighters like you to make sure that that is not happening. Walker, Nikki Giovanni, oh honey. 
And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady just ain't gonna do this week. Number one, Brittany Kreiner is still in a Russian prison. And because of the advocacy many good people have been doing, the White House is trying to clean this shit up by moving towards offering a trade with Russia for some man who was selling weapons. But something smells funny here, because if you were really actively negotiating, I highly doubt you'd be talking about it publicly. But midterms and whatnot got folks shook. All this to say, keep pushing, because it's working. And keep pushing, because if we rest now, they gonna just say we tried and not actually do the thing they say they're doing. You feel me on this? Keep going. Other things Lady ain't gonna do this week, well, Biden tried it with a new version of the 1994 crime bill. Now, in this week's episode of This Is Why the Fuck We Don't Trust You, the president is shopping around a $37 billion proposal called the Safer America Plan, which would provide $13 billion for 100,000 more police officers, impose tougher sentences for selling fentanyl, mm-hmm, sound familiar? $15 billion for states to use at their discretion to reduce violent crime, $5 billion for violence prevention programs. This bill moves money to hire additional alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents to trace ghost guns and unauthorized weapons. Now, y'all know Lady is all about safe communities where everybody can thrive. That is a no-brainer. This isn't a new proposal per se. I mean, it was already in the budget proposal from the White House, but this is the first time they've been trying to actively shop it around. So yeah, like I said, Lady is for safe communities. I'm all about the shit, but this shit right here ain't it. And we already know because they already tried this shit in 1994. It really was the onset of how we got to mass incarceration as we know it now. Increase police and give some lip service to services. Now let me tell y'all something. Police departments are not underfunded. Let me repeat. Police departments are not underfunded. Must I say it again? Maybe one more time for good measure? Police departments are not underfunded. Our communities are underfunded. Our communities have been being robbed of the things we need to live well for literally 30 years. Case in point, that COVID stimulus money that was going to states, well, more than 40% of that money has gone to, you guessed it, police. Now, on top of that, you want to give more money to police, create a new version of the crack cocaine nonsense, but this time with fentanyl, and then you want to try to lure people to vote for it? by siphoning off some money for mental health services and some vague something or other about violence prevention programs? Who the fuck is this for anyway? I will say this. The proposal is dead in the water for now because the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Progressive Caucus said hail to the na 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 na. But you better bet your ass that this shit will be back and we gotta be ready to beat that shit back again. Quit running after these white folks and get with the program, sir. And just to say it, because I need to, and y'all gonna get after me if I don't, so I'm saying it now. I know there's probably black folks at the table saying we need to get the crime in our communities under control. I know this. Trust me, I do. However, and in addition, I can promise you, folk are over there talking about job training and community policing and stuff like that. But look, these carrot and stick type proposals are bullshit 
because they always finna have energy for the punishment part and the incentives part they go and drag their feet on because they have to spend money on that stuff. But it doesn't make money. More police makes money. Weapons and other punishment technology is a big fucking business. Don't get it twisted, y'all. This shit ain't for us. Okay, so here's what Lady wants more of this week, though. The Department of Health and Human Services moves to protect reproductive justice. So Lady just got the scoop this week that the Department of Health and Human Services announced a proposed rule to strengthen non-discrimination in healthcare, including abortion. Now, this rule would restore and strengthen federal civil rights protections in certain federally funded healthcare programs, and it affirms the administration's intentions to protect people from discrimination based on sex and gender identity. It also provides protections to healthcare providers. Now, it's not everything, but I think what this shows us is that there's some scrambling right now to figure out what kinds of measures can be put in place to get some footholds. Now, this rule, if adopted, it would apply to Medicare and Medicaid programs, which usually serves people who are low income. We love to see it. And this is why we should also be advocating to expand these programs, particularly in southern states where governors are refusing to accept federal dollars to expand access to health care. Evil shit, y'all. Precisely because it would support communities of color and low income communities. Shout out to HHS. Welcome back to Ladies Love Notes, where we give you all of the real about being newly single and dating in your 40s. This week, we are dipping into the grab bag and highlighting your questions. Mm-hmm, that's right. And if you haven't sent one in yet, what are you waiting for? Hmm? What you waiting for? I mean, for real, bring it on. You know I'm always going to give you all of the real and none of the fake. You ain't got to put your name on it if you don't want to. I mean, remember the theme of this show? It's do what you like. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Here we go. So this question is from Two Together. I just ended a six-year relationship and am deeply grieving. They want kids. I don't. Something neither of us should bend for the other. I find myself wanting to break up together, as in tackle this breakup hand-in-hand with my partner because they are the person I've tackled life's highs and lows with. Any advice for creating space in a breakup when y'all still love and care for each other? Oh, I got advice. I mean, first off, let me thank you for the question because this one's a doozy. I love this question because I can literally relate and I'm learning a lot about this right now. So take it for what you will. My short answer is this. Start with you first. Look, my ex and I, we have the same orientation. We love each other dearly. And we've been through so much together. Same, same on the kids piece, although there was more to it than this. But ultimately, we wanted different things. And rather than trying to beat each other into submission around the things the other person wanted, we decided to support each other in pursuing the things that each of us want. Now, no, I don't want to live in the country and raise eight kids, but I want you to have that. So how can I be supportive without taking this on as my own? Beautiful, loving and healthy approach. Round of applause for you, my friend. Round of applause. But here's where this gets tricky. Now, we agreed to stay friends and have each other's backs exactly as we had in our marriage. This is and was the intention, but the execution? Messy, to say the least. 
not because either of us is intending or trying to hurt the other person, but because I'm learning, you actually need to renegotiate what friendship looks like outside of being in a relationship. And as much as I hate to admit this, it's different and troubled water, Sunny. Breakups are emotional acts. Now, of course, you two want the best for each other and you can have it. Of course, you two love each other. Of course, you want to carry on just as it was, but different because you're going your separate ways. But that's just it. Going your separate ways, it's painful and it's going to come up in your friendship. Like when one or both of you starts dating again. Or when something comes up that triggers the fuck out of you because that's exactly the same annoying ass shit they did when y'all were together. Or when our patterns and our practices come up, and they will too because there's a breakup happening here. Do not, I repeat, do not have the notion that things will continue just as they were. They won't. Everything is changing and it's going to keep changing. And in order to be responsive to that change, I'm going to say this. What do you need right now? And how can you give that to yourself? Now, y'all were together for a significant amount of time. And God willing, you will be in each other's lives forever and ever and ever. What do you need in order to get there? There's some parts of this that you're going to have to do alone. And you'll be able to build a stronger relationship if you're honest here about what you can receive from this person and what you can provide to this person. And the way to get there is to give yourself some time first. You need some time to grieve. You need some time to heal. You need some time to be intentional and communicate clearly and really truly figure out for yourself, what do I want this to look like? Do some scenario planning and don't try to glow it up now. Messy shit is gonna happen, I promise you. Like when your person starts to date again, what do you want them to share with you and what do you not want shared? Should they share it with your friends first or should they share it with you first? What's considered public? How are y'all dealing with your friends? Are you cool with your ex bringing their new boo around y'all's friends? Do you need to make some agreements there? All this to say, dear one, part of what it means to navigate a breakup together as friends is to recognize that things are going to change because y'all are not together anymore. What does it mean to really be friends outside of a relationship that y'all once shared? Now, unfortunately, my dear, and maybe also fortunately, your relationship is going to change. I advise that you embrace it, plan for it, investigate and interrogate it, and communicate about it. But before you do any of those things, take some time for you. If you and your ex are really as close as you say you are, and I believe you from what you've communicated here, they're still going to be there when you've had some time to yourself. And so will you. listening how can they follow the incredible work you're doing on the socials yeah so uh on twitter it's at ilhan omar mn uh ilhan mn um uh to to follow me personally and then our official uh twitter is rep ilhan uh, and that's the same handle for 
Instagram and TikTok and all the other spaces as well that we're on. Well, we absolutely rep Ilhan and we know you've got a primary coming up. And so if anybody here is listening from the great state of Minnesota, y'all know what to do and you know how to do it. Trust me, I've been there. I've seen y'all do it. Yeah, I mean, and people can get information on how to help with our primary that's on August 9th at ilhanomar.com as well. Yes, you better visit. Congresswoman, we appreciate you joining us in the midst of trying to make this country better. Thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to talk to you soon. Thank you. That's it for Lady Don't Take No, but I promise you I will be back here next Thursday with a brand new conversation and some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us and please let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what you like, tell us what's on your mind, and tell us what you ain't going to take no more of. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our social media. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. And let's give a special shout out to Jahari Farrar, for making sure that people get what they need from our socials. We appreciate you. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our incredible producer is Phil Circus. Our amazing theme is Bioterics. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And me, I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, we do not want, nor do we need, no regurgitation of the 1994 crime bill. I don't care how many whistles you put on it. Public safety and policing are not and never have been the same thing. Police do not need any more motherfucking money. They are already getting nearly 50% of most general funds in cities and more than 40% of the billions of dollars in COVID relief money that went to states. And probably even more than that. You cannot and will not ever police your way to public safety. Not ever. That's right. I said it. Because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no. She insists on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman is. She won't speak unless it's something worse. Saying don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way. Her hips way furious. Love y'all. Love y'all.